following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw or our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Okay, so we're making our way through the book of 2 Corinthians. Um, if you have just uh, jumped in midstream, if you're new here, um, we're working our way through for the majority of the year through this book in the New Testament, the second portion of the Bible called 2 Corinthians. Um, it's actually a letter written to a church by a guy named Paul. Paul was a guy who planted a lot of churches around um, Europe. In fact, if we've got a map of, yes, around this area, um, and he planted a lot of churches and worked with a lot of churches and taught a lot of churches, um, including the one in Corinth. And this is a letter that he wrote to them. And Corinth is actually an interesting city uh, because there is a modern-day Corinth, which you can see on the map there, near Athens in southern Greece. And there was an ancient Corinth that existed um, at least a thousand years before uh, this uh, book was written. But both of those two cities are actually different from the Corinth that we have in the Bible. Uh, they're in roughly the same place, but the ancient city was destroyed in 146 BC by the Romans. They came in, they said they didn't like the look of the place, so they leveled it, took it to the ground, killed everybody, it was kind of gory. Um, and then later on, about 100 years later, they rebuilt it. Uh, Julius Caesar commissioned it to be rebuilt, and it was rebuilt as Corinth. And then that's the city that had the church that Paul was writing to. But then in 1858, a massive earthquake leveled the city. Um, and the modern Corinth was rebuilt several miles away. So the, the Corinth that we're talking about actually doesn't exist. It didn't exist before. It doesn't exist now. Um, actually, you know what? The modern city of Corinth was destroyed again in 1923 by an earthquake and by a fire in 1933. So if you're planning to move somewhere in Greece, don't choose Corinth. Not the luckiest place in the world. Now, is any of that important to us today? Probably not. But I found it interesting, and I have the microphone, so you get to hear it. But one thing I will say is the fact that it was built and largely populated by the Roman Empire will be important as, as we look through our passage today. Right, now the other thing, the important thing to remember about this book is that while it says Second Corinthians in our Bibles, um, as Reuben has mentioned, it's actually probably the fourth letter that Paul had wrote, written to this church. Um, and 1 Corinthians is actually the second letter he wrote. So in between 1st, 2nd Corinthians and 2nd, 4th Corinthians is a mysterious third letter uh, that we don't have and it's not included in the Bible. But as we've been traveling through the pages of 2nd, 4th Corinthians, we've seen that this third letter has had a massive impact on the church. And it's had a massive impact on Paul. Um, in fact, he says he wrote it out of great distress in 2 Corinthians 2.4. He says, I wrote to you out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. So it's had a huge impact on him, and it's had a big impact on the Corinthian church because as we've seen, there's a bit of a backlash to the letter, and they've kind of turned against Paul, and they're starting to question him. They're starting to question whether or not he should have said the things he said. They're starting to question his travel plans, whether he's keeping his word. They're questioning everything that he does 
the way he carries himself. I don't know about you, but I kind of want to read that third letter. It seems a little interesting. Like, Paul must have really come after these guys because they really come after him back. And so now this second, fourth Corinthians that we have seems to be a defense against what Paul wrote in the third letter. He's defending himself of, of why he said he did, why he said what he said, why he did what he did, and why he is the way he is. So that kind of sets the scene as we enter chapter 3. And once again, Paul is, is arguing his defense here. And I'm going to read the whole chapter, and then we're going to have a quick look at it. So uh, deep breath. Here we go. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, like some people, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter, written on our hearts, known and read by everyone. You show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, and not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such confidence we have through Christ before God, that we are competent in and ourselves not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory, so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, transitory though it was, Will it not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? If the ministry that brought condemnation was glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? For what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. And if what was transitory came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We're not like Moses who had put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. But their minds were made dull, for to this day the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, who with unveiled face contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Right. Now, if your first reaction to hearing and reading all of that is something along the lines of, uh, who did what now? It's okay. <laughs> You're in good company. Paul, as a person, seems to be rather down-to-earth kind of a guy. Uh, he makes tents uh, as he goes about uh, preaching and teaching. But Paul the writer and Paul the thinker, much more complicated. You've got to bear in mind that Paul was raised as a lawyer and a scholar. So his uh, intellect is through the roof. And it shows up in the way he crafts his arguments, the way he puts his ideas together. They, they can get quite complicated. In fact, Paul owns the record for the longest sentence ever written in ancient Greek literature. It comes in Ephesians chapter 1 verses 3 all the way through to verse 14. 
202 words, no punctuation. The guy's amazing. Uh, yeah. So at first brush, some of the passages, including maybe this one, when we read them, it can seem a little confusing. But when you dive into it, when you really pull it apart a lot more, there's so much richness to the way that he crafts what he says and the way that he says it. Now, if this was uh, Reuben here this morning, we would be diving really deep. And he's, he's, he gets in right deep and he really pulls things apart and helps us really understand the intricacies of what's going on. Uh, I'm not Reuben. So um, what I want to do today is something a little bit different because Paul touches on a lot of different stuff in this passage. He touches on recommendation letters, covenants, veils, spirit, letter, stone tablets, uh, which is not a new Apple product, but um, actual stone tablets. But basically at the core of what Paul is saying here, he's defending his ministry. He's establishing what he is doing based on one word. And you probably heard that word crop up a few times. Glory. Glory is the reason Paul does what he does. Glory is the reason he writes bold and possibly critical letters to churches like Corinth. Glory. But what does, what does glory really even mean? I mean, it's kind of one of those words we use a lot in churches, right? I mean, I just read glory a lot in that passage, and we kind of, you know, like, yeah, I know what glory means. Do we? I mean, in churches, you will hear us say glory all the time. I mean, in fact, in church, we glorify the glorious glory of God, don't we? Glory. Glory, hallelujah. But what does it even mean? What are we saying when we say that? The definition of glory is high renown or honor won by notable achievements or magnificence or great beauty. Glory is respect. It's prestige. It's eminence. An acknowledgement of greatness. Perhaps the best example of glory is the Roman Empire. As we said, uh, they were the ones who built this version of Corinth. And... Uh, Everything that the Romans did, everything that they did, was designed to accentuate the glory of Rome, the impressiveness of Rome, their military prowess, their expansive economy, the, the, the high society and progressive government, their philosophy, everything that they did, all of it was a testament to how impressive Rome really was. And no one argued with the, with the glory of Rome. Even those who hated Rome and tried to destroy Rome were impressed with Rome's impressiveness. And perhaps that's why the Corinthian church was so irked by Paul. And we've mentioned this a little bit before in the series. They were surrounded by the glory of the Roman Empire. In fact, they weren't that far from Rome itself. It was just kind of off the screen in that map I put up before. They saw firsthand its power, its fortunes, its intellectual and philosophical superiority. And everybody walked around with their head held high and their chest puffed out and their noses kind of pointing straight up because they were part of the Roman Empire. They were Romans. And everybody talked themselves up and they, they talked about how good they were because that's what Romans did. They were Roman. 
And to be impressive meant that you expressed your impressiveness. That was your glory. And people would have other important people say good things about them, letters of recommendation, so that it would puff up their reputation. And Paul was nothing like that. He refused to boast about himself. Instead, he wanted to let his impact on people be his own recommendation letter. He claimed to be a part of the kingdom of God that was more powerful than any on earth. But he didn't hold himself for that kind of arrogance and air of importance that they should have if he was, you know, that he should have in their eyes. If he was a representative of an empire greater than Rome, why didn't he act like it? Why did he act so meek and mild? Didn't make sense to the Corinthian church. And yet, Paul says in this letter that it is glory that motivates him, that pushes him forward. It's glory, this impressiveness that gives him the authority to write hard letters like the one he wrote to the Corinthians that started all of this hoo-ha. So maybe you can perhaps understand if the Corinthians wonder, what glory? Or what glory? I mean, here's a guy, Paul, who refuses to act like the scholar and the lawyer that he was and would be very well respected for being in this part of the world. And instead of taking a big salary like a big-time hotshot philosopher should, he makes his own tents and makes his own money. And he's representing a guy, Jesus, who was born to a poor, outcast family in this tiny, irrelevant country on the outskirts of the Roman Empire. A guy, Jesus, who spent 30 years being a, a hammer jockey before he even started his ministry, and then three years into that got thrown on a cross. I mean, that's glorious? Where's the glory? Where's the impressiveness? Paul says, glad you asked. And then Paul makes his point. And to do so, he takes this comparison and he starts by talking about the glory of the old covenant. The old covenant between God and Israel. Okay, now, that the Corinthians can get their heads around. Okay, the Corinthian church, a lot of them would have been Jews in this part of the world. They understood the glory of the old covenant. And for, for those who are unfamiliar, the Old Covenant essentially is kind of like the Old Testament. It's this agreement that God made with his chosen people, Israel, way back in the, in the beginning of the Bible in the book of Exodus, uh, which actually ironically was last year's major series that we went through. So if you want to get a little catch up, you can jump on the podcast on the website and, you know, listen to the 30 or 40 sermons that we did through that book. But basically the idea is God chose his people, the Israelites. And he said, I am going to be your God. You are going to be my people. And he gives them the set of laws, which Paul will call the law, or he'll call the letter, or he will refer to as tablets of stone, because they were literally tablets of stone. And he gives them these laws so that they can live a pure life and through that purity are able to move closer to God. And he did it through this hero of the Old Testament, Moses. Now, this was a time when God knew what glory 
was. I mean, man, to see some of the stuff that he did back then. I mean, he pulled his people out of Egypt, right? They were slaves and he put all of these plagues, you know? It's like he turned all of the water into blood and he had gnats and flies and frogs and all sorts of amazing things, which would have been great to see, not so good to live through. But he did all of these amazing things. He brought them out into the desert. He is represented like with this great pillar of, of uh, cloud and smoke and a fire. And then they come to the sea and he just like splits the sea so everyone can walk through on dry land. He does miracle after miracle after miracle. I mean, that, that's glory. That's impressive. And then they bring him to the mountain. I've got a picture of it up on the screen. Bring them to this mountain and he gives them this law. And this was an impressive scene as well because not only did he give them the law, he didn't say, hey guys, here you go didn't email it into Moses' account. He had Moses come up the mountain. And accompanying this was all of this cloud and, and thunder and lightning and the earth shook and the whole place was windy. So, you know, like Wellington. And, and, and basically, he's, the people are so scared for their lives. They say, they beg Moses, don't let God talk to us directly. He's going to kill us just by talking to us. That's glory, you know. And then Moses goes up and he gets the stone tablets and he comes down. And he's been talking to God and his face is so aglow, it's so bright because he's been talking to God that no one can look at him. He has to wear a veil over his face just to protect the people from looking at him. And it was so, such an impactful moment that even all the way through to Paul's day, they're still wearing that veil every time they read the Old Testament. They read Moses' words because of the impact, the glory, the eminence, the prestige of that event of what God was doing. And yet, I think even the Corinthian church who was reading this letter, I think even they would have admitted that the true glory of what happened on that mountain was not the fireworks, it was the fact that God had made a way to come and live amongst his people. Because before the law, people's mistakes, the things they had done wrong, their choices, what we call sin, that had separated us from God, right? Because God is perfect, we're not, that can't mix. So God had given this law, this covenant so that he could build a house in their city. He could build a place in their town and dwell among them. And that was impressive. That was the true glory, the true impressiveness of what happened with the old covenant. It allowed people to be closer to God. And this is Paul's point. That covenant was glorious. It was impressive. But it was nothing compared to what God was going to do next. Because as Paul expresses in several places throughout the Bible, that law, that covenant was never going to be enough. It was never going to work permanently. Because no matter how hard they tried, no one could keep all of those laws perfectly. No one could fulfill all of the requirements of coming into God's presence perfectly. It was always going to fail. In fact, Psalm says, 
You know, the Lord looks down from heaven on all mankind to see if any who understand, any who seek God, all have turned away. All have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. No one's perfect enough. There needed to be another covenant. Everything in the Old Testament pointed to something else happening. A covenant where the requirements, an agreement where the requirements of coming close to God could be achievable. Something where people could become good enough somehow to be close to God. So he sent Jesus. Carpenter. Comes down to earth. He lives a perfect life. He does what we couldn't do. And then he takes the mistakes, he takes all of the punishment for all of the mistakes, all of the sins that we've ever done and will ever do, and he takes the punishment on the cross. That's why we celebrate what happened on the cross. Because in that one action, he clears away everything that separates man from God so we can truly be close. And not like God is now living, he's built his house in our city, but he is now in our hearts. We are no longer his chosen nation, we're his family. It's not like we've come this close, we've come all the way. So if the old covenant was impressive because it brought us halfway to God, how much more impressive is the agreement, the covenant that brings us all the way to God? That much more. Isn't that better? Is that not more glorious? Is that not more impressive? If the old covenant was amazing, how much more is the new one? And he says, in fact, that was the point of the old covenant. That was the whole reason the old one existed, to produce the second one. I have, not breakfast, this is an egg. You guys are familiar with eggs, I'm assuming. The egg is very impressive. It's pretty simple. It's kind of small, it's round, it's whatever, but it is actually a marvel of nature. If you think about what goes on inside one of these things, this shell is thin enough that a tiny little bird can pick its way out, right? And yet it is strong enough that it can withhold about two kilograms of pressure before it's crushed. It's waterproof. Bacteria can't get into it. And yet carbon dioxide and moisture can come out of it through pores. It's a beautiful thing, right? So what's more impressive than an egg? The chicken that comes out of the egg, right? I mean, what good is an egg if there's no chicken? I mean, unless you're hungry. Or it's Easter. Or if you really need to throw something at someone. But from, at least from the mother hen's perspective, all right? From the mother chicken's perspective, what good is an egg without another chicken? Its purpose, its very reason for existence is to create the chicken. So how much more impressive is the chicken, right? We don't like see the chick hatch and then take the egg, put it back together again and leave the chicken, right? Oh, I'm so glad I got to keep this egg. 
This is the way God sees the old covenant, the law that he gave. It was impressive. It had glory in its own right, but it was only ever meant to pave the way for the new covenant. All right? It may not have had, the new covenant may not have had the pizzazz. It may not have had the fireworks that the old covenant came with or that empires like Rome had. But that stuff's only frills, isn't it? The true glory, the true impressiveness of anything comes from what influence it has on the world. Who is impressed by it? Rome was impressive. It was glorious. It ruled over millions of people for hundreds of years. Jesus has had a life-changing influence over billions of people for thousands of years and is still going strong. That's glorious. That is true glory. And this is Paul's point. If the old covenant led by Moses was glorious and impressive, and the Corinthian church agreed with this point, and yet the old covenant could not achieve what God wanted to do in the world, it was useless by itself. How much more glorious is the new covenant that did achieve everything God wanted to achieve? He's presenting that to this Corinthian church. You agree that was good. How much better is this? Therefore, therefore, 2 Corinthians 3.12, therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Paul makes no apologies for the rough treatment of his last letter. Because he knows that if Moses had written that letter, they would not bat an eyelid. If Moses had turned up in their church and said all of the things that Paul said, they would have said, absolutely, whatever you say, sir. Because Moses is a hero of the Old Testament. Moses is a hero of the Old Covenant. And yet Paul is saying, if what Moses did was good and yet what Jesus did was better, I work for him, why are you not giving me that same respect? Why are my words not as better, more glorious than Moses' words? Because I bring a message of the new covenant. I bring a message of the new agreement. I have that authority. I have the glory of what God has done through Jesus. That is my glory. That's my empire. And so I may not hold my head up high. I may not point my nose in the air. I may not get letters of recommendation but I am going to go forward with boldness and I'm going to do what I've been tasked to do because what is behind me, what is pushing me forward is greater than anything the world has ever seen. Greater than all of the things that you respect. Paul doesn't need pomp and circumstance that the Corinthians were expecting. He doesn't need to prop up his message because the message props itself up. It has its own glory that is going to outlast and outshine anything that Paul would have done anyway. Paul doesn't need to talk up his game because the game talks itself. The message talks itself up. In fact, it talks itself up so loudly 
and so profoundly that if Paul did want to toot his own horn, no one would hear it anyway. Because his message is glorious. The message is glorious. It is the actions of God. And Paul works for God. So let me ask you, what can hold him back? What is there in the world that could force him to his knees or to pull his words? What is going to stop Paul from doing what he has been tasked with doing? Nothing. There is nothing that can do that. Glory. In a second, we are going to um, have communion. And we're going to celebrate the glory of what Jesus did. And we're going to take a, a little piece of bread and we're going to take a little cup of juice. And the bread represents Jesus' body that he broke in order to achieve this glory. And the blood that was spilled is what the, the juice represents. And these are symbols. Kind of like the eagle was a symbol for the Roman Empire. The Stars and Stripes flag is a symbol for America. The dragon for China. Whatever, different symbols for different places around the world. They are symbols of the impressiveness and the power and the glory of what it represents. We have a piece of bread and a cup that represents the power and the glory of what God did of what Jesus did on the cross. They're not symbols of weakness, but of strength. But before we do that, I want to ask you a question, a similar question. If God is more glorious than anything in our world, if the impact and the influence of what happened at the cross, of this new agreement, this new covenant, is greater than any glory of anything in the world. And it is. I mean, this is stuff that the angels were longing to look into. This is stuff that the, the Old Testament heroes were dying to find out what God was going to do. We know what he's going to do, what he did. And even more than Paul, we know what he's been doing for the last 2,000 years. We have seen it spread through the world capture the lives and the hearts of billions of people. We've seen this glory. So my question is, if we are Christians, if we have joined his family, if we have chosen to follow him, what is there in this world that can pull us to our knees? What is there in this world that can get us to pull our words, to make us not feel bold? What is there in this world that can stop us from doing what God has tasked us to do. Is there anything? I say not. Except ourselves. I'm going to pray. Lord, I just thank you. I thank you that what I say here is not empty words. Lord, I know that a lot of the philosophers and a lot of the teachers in Paul's day they had a lot of great words, but there was nothing behind it. Paul was not necessarily as impressive a person, but man, what was behind his words changed the world.
and changed us. It changed me. And I thank you that, for that. I thank you that this means something. And Lord, we want to give ourselves to that. We want to give our lives to a cause that is greater than anything the world has ever seen. And the power that it can have on people's lives. And the reconciliation that we can have with the God who makes us and loves us and yearns for us. Thank you. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.